Thank you, Joel. Thank you, worship team. Church, why don't you grab a Bible? Why don't you grab a Bible? And we are going to be in the book of Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews toward the back of the Bible in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. All right. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue one in the chair in front of you. Go ahead and open that one up with us. Uh, and we're trying a new thing. Bulletins are back. We got this little handout in your bulletin. We're trying a new thing. Uh, that will be kind of our guide through Hebrews chapter 10 today, if you're a note taker. Um, or a doodler. It's a nice doodle page too. You can doodle if that helps you concentrate. It helps me concentrate. You can draw a picture of the pastor if you want. And you can show it to me after. Make me look good. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. So, um, you have all your gifts bought? You ready? I'm seeing some of these. I'm almost ready. I'm about, th- I'm about this close. I'm about this close, but I'm almost ready. I'm almost ready. Some of us are, some of us aren't quite ready. Um, Christmas is a, lot, it's a lot of pressure. Christmas gifts are a lot of pressure. I am not a great gift giver. Okay, I feel like I do an okay job by the end of it, but I, it stresses me out. And it stresses me out uh, for my kids more than e- even my wife. Uh, you know, well, not Judah. I mean, Judah, I'm going to give him a, a big rock from our backyard, and he's going to think it's great because he's not even one year old, right? Uh, but my two daughters, this is, this is the mindset I'm in. We will take their gifts out, and we'll spread it in our room, and we'll say, okay, do we have enough? Right? And they both have to have equal amounts, okay? And so I got to think, do they have enough? And that's sometimes what I worry about. And then about halfway through the conversation, I think, oh no, they have too much. And that's almost, that's even worse because then we don't want to spoil them, all right? So we got to take some out, put some in and, and rearrange. And then finally, I think, we, I think we have a good equilibrium. I think we gave them enough not to spoil them too much. I think we fit right in the middle. I think we're good. I think we're good. But all this stress makes me ask, why in the world do we give gifts on Christmas? Well, uh, the wise men gave gifts to Jesus. That's one reason. In fact, we've got our little nativity here. And one of the cool things about it, I could even grab it. This little nativity comes with myrrh and frankincense. This is what they gave. Anybody want this for Christmas? I don't want that for Christmas. Myrrh and frankincense. That's, that's one of the reasons we give gifts. But the main reason is, this doesn't surprise you, Jesus is our gift from the Father. Not surprising. Jesus is our gift from the Father. And so we take this awesome thing that God has given us and we reflect that in our gifts for each other. But you know what? We don't do it quite the same way that God does. We've kind of developed this new thing where we say, Santa Claus has a list, doesn't he? How many times are you going to check that list? Twice. He's got to check it twice. If you're on the naughty list or you're on the good list, he's got to check it twice. He wants to make sure you're in the right place. And what do we always say? We say, have you been a good little boy or girl? If you're a good little boy, you get gifts. If you're a good little girl, you get gifts. We, that's how we set up our Christmas experience. Isn't that at least what we say 
I mean, we don't really do that, but isn't that what we say? If you're good, you're going to get gifts. If you're bad, you're going to get coal. That's kind of how we set this whole thing up. And that is completely different from how God gives gifts. Santa seems to say, if you earn it, you get gifts. God the Father says, you could never earn it. And so I will give it to you freely. Isn't that amazing? And He doesn't give us little toys that need batteries. and He doesn't give us frankincense and myrrh. He says, I will give you the gift of my Son. You can't earn it. I give it freely. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. And Hebrews chapter 10 really gives us a good picture of, of what this gift looks like. The, this, the gift of His Son. What does it mean? What does it entail? Why is it so good? And the book of Hebrews was written to, do you know who the book of Hebrews is written to? It's in the title. The Hebrews. The Jews. And the author of Hebrews in fact, there's good reason to believe that this was a sermon that they read out to a group of Hebrew Christians. The book of Hebrews, written to the Hebrews, focuses much on the Old Testament laws and the laws is specifically about the rituals that God has laid out before the people of Israel, saying these rituals are what you must do to display your faith in Me and maintain a relationship with God. That's the sacrificial system. Sacrificial system is a good thing. It was set up so that we can display and maintain our relationship with God. So it was a good thing. But it was a weighty thing. And so as they heard this sermon, they, they remember, they, they remember, they recollect, they know what it means to bring animals to the temple, to be under the law, to bring animals to the temple and sacrifice these animals for the forgiveness of your sins. They know what that means. They know what that feels like. And so the question is, how does the gift of Jesus Christ fit in with the Old Testament rituals. And as New Testament believers, we could say, how does the gift of God fit in with our good works? What does God expect of us? And so let's read part of this sermon together. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to go Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to read to little number 25. It goes like this. For since the law the law of God, the law of the Old Testament, the law of the rituals, the law of the sacrifices. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true forms of these realities, <clears throat> it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, they cannot make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
You deal with reminders of your sin. Sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do Your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. Now when He said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do Your will. He does away with the first, the laws and the sacrifices. He does away with the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Here's the phrase, once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put My laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offerings for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He has opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. How does the gift of God's Son fit in with this sacrificial system? Well, the first thing that we, we need to understand, first thing we need to understand that we might, we might lose sight of, we might get confused with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was not salvation. Are you with me? The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was not salvation. You did not sacrifice bulls and sheep, sheep and goats and grain. You did not obey the Ten Commandments in order to be saved. It might be shocking. It might be shocking to hear, but that's not how people were saved in the Old Testament. 
Scripture tells us, he says it in here, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure in. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. So, please understand, please understand, everyone, everywhere, at every time, is saved by grace through faith alone. Are you with me? That's the rule for all time. We are saved by grace through faith alone. The sacrificial system was good works. We cannot be saved by good works. And I don't think I've ever done a good enough work as good as bringing a bull to the temple to be sacrificed. If that doesn't save me, what can? So the sacrificial system, the sacrificial system was the same for them as it was for as good works are for us. They are not salvation. They are an outward display of a heart that has faith in God. So, as an Israelite, as one who has faith in God, who wants to obey God, who wants to display for the world and my family what faith in God looks like, wants to maintain a close relationship with the God who has saved me, I will specify a certain lamb that is perfect, spotless, without deformity. My family will love this lamb, feed this lamb. My little girls will look after this lamb. We'll inspect this lamb on a regular basis to make sure it hasn't broken a bone, doesn't have any deformity. And my most pressing need, my most pressing obedient sacrifice was to take that little lamb, take my girls by the hand, go to the temple, take the lamb to the priests, and the lamb would be sacrificed for this forgiveness of our sins. An outward display of what God has done on our inside. Now, how often and how many of those sacrifices were made in Israel's history? Can you think about the millions and millions and millions of animals that were killed for the forgiveness of our sins? Think about that. Israel's old. It was around for a long time, even before Jesus came about. Thousands and thousands, if not millions of animals slaughtered each year to symbolize the forgiveness of our sins. Can you imagine the blood and the gore and the guts? Can you imagine what that's teaching my family? first thing that we see, first gift that we see in that is the gift of the reminder of sin. He says this whole sacrificial system, which is good, we don't need to bring our New Testament biases in and say that was bad. No, that was good. That was given by God. That good sacrificial system 
he says, could not bring about our perfection, and it happens every year, millions and millions of times, a year throughout the centuries, lots, many, many millions of times. It could not bring about our salvation, but what it did was it reminded us of our sins. How is that a gift? How is that a gift? How is the reminder of sins a gift? Well, Scripture lays out the opposite of being reminded of our sin. is one of the most hopeless situations I could ever imagine myself in. I wouldn't even know it. Scripture lays out we can have the reminder of our sin or God can harden our heart. We see him do this with Pharaoh. The Lord hardened his heart. That's not being reminded of our sin. That's, That's having a calloused heart that's so stony and callous that we can't even feel our own sin. You know what this feels like. We all know what this feels like. We we have this habitual sin that we partake in, and at first when we start doing it, it's, it's like, oh, that hurts. I know I'm not supposed to do that. I feel bad for that. My conscience is pricked. And believers, the Holy Spirit gently tells us, that's not for, for sons and daughters of God. We feel that. But what happens? The more we partake in this sin, the harder our heart gets. Are you with me? We can feel that. And in rare cases in Scripture, the Lord has hardened people's hearts. So a reminder of sins from God is a gift. In fact, not even the hardness of of heart the reminder of sin is a gift and what God often does to us as we harden our own hearts and as we partake in this habitual sin nature sometimes scripture depicts it as God just letting go and saying okay I'll give you over to your sin it's like I remember I was on a steep hill in my neighborhood growing up on my bike and I wanted to go down the hill as fast as I could and zoom, you know, went down as fast as I could and I hopped the curb and I smacked myself right into the house at the bottom of the hill. Still etched in my mind. It's one of those events, right? And that's what I think about when I think about God giving us over to our sinfulness, the consequences of our sinfulness. It's like God was holding me on that bike saying, don't do it. That's really dumb. Don't do it. Don't do it. I want to. I want to. I want to. Don't do it. It's going to hurt. I want to. Okay. Zoom. Reminder of sin is a gift from God because the alternative is a hardening of hearts where we can't even feel our sin and giving us over to our depravity. And those two things come go hand in hand. And not only that, we have the Lord telling us in this exact book in a couple chapters, He says, the Lord disciplines those He loves. So if we are reminded of our sinfulness by the Lord, that is a sign that, we, that He loves us. And so, Being reminded of our sin is a gift, first and foremost, because it's when I am not reminded of my sin that I should really worry. And the reminder of my sin, as I take my kids up and we we have this little lamb and I come up and I give it to the priest and I see 
what the priest does with that little lamb, I am reminded of the disastrous, deadly, destructive consequences of my sin. Imagine that. Sin, Christian, sins before we came to Christ was our biggest problem, separates us from God. Christian, sin is still our biggest problem. My, the eternal wages of my sin, the eternal consequences of my sin are covered by Christ. But sin, sin is still my biggest problem. Because sin is still disastrous, destructive, and dangerous. Sin still affects my relationship with God. Sin can destroy my earthly relationships, can't it? We can all agree that our sinfulness has destroyed or at least damaged some of our most precious relationships. It's part of human life. For my daughters, we've, we've had conversations about dangerous sins. There are non-dangerous sins like stealing a cookie from the cookie jar, which you might get in trouble for. But then there are dangerous sins like playing out in the street. That's a dangerous sin. Mom and daddy, mommy and daddy have to take that one very seriously because that is a dangerous sin. Adults, we have dangerous sins we can partake in. And so these sacrifices are a reminder of the grotesque, tragic nature of our sin. And as we look at Christ on the cross and as we sing about Him hanging on the cross in that beautiful song, we need to be reminded of the nasty nature dangerous nature of our sin. Reminder of sin is a gift. Reminder of sin is a gift because sin reminds me of God's grace and forgiveness. Christians, isn't God so gracious and merciful that He takes your sin and in the reminder of your sin, He says, but look at what Jesus has done for you. Isn't that awesome how God takes our sins and can resurrect them for something good? Christian, the reminder of our sins, when I take my family to the temple and we sacrifice that animal, I am reminded and they are reminded, look, God has forgiven us. Look at the mercy and grace of God. He has forgiven us. We are forgiven before the holy King of the universe. What a gracious God we serve. Christian, our sins also serve to remind us of our everyday need for the grace of God. Aren't we tempted to move beyond that? And think if I get my be most of my behavior in order and I look like a good church Christian person, then I can move beyond the gospel and go to bigger things and better things. There's nothing bigger or better. Our, the reminder of sins in our life is a gift because it constantly reminds us of the most important thing in our life. We need Jesus now as much as we ever did. Reminder of sin is a gift from God. And so since our walk with Jesus is the most important thing about us, and since sin clouds my thinking about Jesus, and since sin can lead me on a path away from Jesus even as a believer, and since sin threatens to destroy us, to be reminded of our sin is a loving gift, can be a loving gift from God. And now, since that we have that gift, 
That gift is designed to, even, even before we come to Christ, the reminder of our sin is, is supposed to shout to us, you need Jesus. And even as believers, a reminder of our sinfulness is a shout that you need Jesus. Since this is true, since this is the case, since sin is still my biggest problem, and it always has been and will be until I see Jesus face to face, how does my merciful and gracious God, after reminding me of my sin, how does He deal with my sin. He deals with my sin through the gift of Christ's body. The gift of Christ's body. He, he uses body often in here, and it's, it's really interesting. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. And in verse 10 he says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Why does he make, why is it body? Why doesn't he just say Jesus? Why all this body talk? It is the gift of Christ's body. As God the Father gave Jesus to us. Think about the precious, tangible, you could reach out and touch it as He offers that little baby to us in the manger. It's something you could pick up and you can touch. He's not someone that's, that's, He's not some philosophy or some theology. He is someone you could touch. You could go up and shake His hand. You could pick Him up as a little baby and cradle Him and rock Him. He falls over and and, and and scratches his knee. He plays tag out in the front yard. This is a person. This is a person with a body. And as he grows up, gets taller, gets stronger, gets bigger, as his feet walk the streets of the town, as he eats food to nourish his body, that body is prepared for one significant moment in time. That body is to be broken. Just as my family would have raised this lamb up and nurtured this lamb and fed this lamb, Jesus rose up with a body that was blemishless, sinless, strong, perfect. And just as I fed the feed to that little lamb, every meal that Jesus took in nourished His body for one purpose, for a sacrifice. A body you have prepared for Me. A body. It is Weighty. It's not a task. It's not a task he could complete as a disembodied angel. Are you with me? Couldn't just send a spirit, couldn't send the Holy Spirit to do this bodiless. He couldn't accomplish it. Jesus needed a body. It's the gift of a body. The Son of God, perfect, kind, loving, took on a body so that He could be slaughtered like a sacrificial 
lamb. That leads us to our next gift. This gift of a body, of a sacrificial lamb, was different than all other lambs and all other sacrifices because this body was the gift of a single sacrifice for sins. A single sacrifice for sins. He says in verse 14, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. So this is the idea. This is the picture. You are a bunch of Hebrew Christians. Grew up with your dad raising these lambs. You would take them to the temple and you would be, they would be sacrificed. You knew what went on in that temple. You knew as the temple gates were flung open and the people brought their animals in. Think about those poor priests. You take a lamb, you slam it on the altar, you cut its throat, the blood and the gore and the guts and the screams. I mean, all those things are going everywhere. And after the first one, you've got a line of 150 other people. That's going to turn into 500 people. It's going to turn into 1,000 people. And you're going to be sacrificing these things over and over and over again. Taking the next one, wrestling it, slamming it down, cutting its throat, blood, guts, gore, screams, and that lamb goes everywhere. Over and over and over again. And the priests would get so tired that they couldn't do this all the time. So you had two weeks on, two weeks off, because you had to have time to recover. You're on your feet all day wrestling these things. Can you imagine? Think about the grueling work. Think about it for the families. I'm raising these lambs year after year after year after year after year and none of them stick. None of them stick. And I'm sure what goes on in the back of your mind is, what if I'm 87 years old and I bring my last lamb and I'm slaughtered and then I die six months later? I got a whole six months worth of sins that weren't sacrificed for. And so this gift of Jesus' body to be a group of Hebrews where it's preached, Jesus, His body was sacrificed once for all. You get it. You get the power of that sacrifice. All my sins wiped away. You get the efficiency of that sacrifice. No more needs to happen. It's done. You get the weight of that. The Son of God was broken and His blood was spilled for me. And you get it when you get the picture of and that priest sacrifices over and over and over again. Sacrifices which can never bring about the forgiveness of sins. But when Christ appeared and made a sacrifice once for all, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He's done. gift of the single sacrifice for sin. He sat down. No more needs to happen. No more needs to come down. That's why on the cross, 
as he provides the sacrifices. His body was broken, and he provides this single sacrifice for sin. What did he say as he died? It is finished. It is finished. A single sacrifice for sins. In that instant, all this human history of sacrifices being required under the law to display your faith in God and to maintain your relationship with God, all these things, in that instant, it is finished. It was gone. Done with. In that instant, Christian, all your sins were covered by the blood of the Lamb of God for all time. All your sins. All your sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And inside this gift of the single sacrifice for sins, He also lets us know about this gift has gifts inside of it. The gift of justification. Now it's a long term. Justification means to declare someone righteous. It's a legal term. And he brings this this concept up in verse 17. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The scene is this. And you get this all over Scripture. Very important to understand justification. It is a courtroom term. So the idea is this. As Jesus' body was broken and spilled out for us once for all, one sacrifice for all, there is a courtroom scene with God the Father on the throne, on the judge's seat. No one else could sit there. And in the courtroom scene, we have a prosecutor. We have Satan who is called the, in Scripture the accuser of the brethren. What is his role in that courtroom? When I am before the throne of God, I will be placed before the Father and I will have a prosecuting attorney, Satan, the accuser. And guess what Satan is going to do for the first time in my life? He's going to tell the truth. He's going to say, God the Father, this man is a wicked sinner. We don't have enough time in the year to go through all of my sins. This man is a wicked sinner deserving your wrath. Aren't you a righteous God? He deserves your wrath. Think about all the people he has hurt. Think about all his treasonous thoughts against you. And he will be right. But you remember where, where, where is Jesus now? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So my mind's eye, I see Satan just flinging these truth bombs at me. Jesus is sitting there quietly listening. And when Satan finally finishes, Jesus will stand up and say, yeah, all that's true, but this one's mine. My blood covers everything. And in that courtroom scene, I will be justified. I will be declared 
righteous, declared innocent, even though I'm guilty. He will remember my sins and my lawless deeds no more. Now, God does not forget. God knows everything. If he were to forget my sins, he would no longer be God. He will remember. That is a, that is a metaphor. That is, that is a picture, this picture language to say this. When God says he will remember your sins no more, your lawless deeds no more, it means he will never, never, never treat you according to your sins and your lawless deeds. Never. Now, you and I have a hard time doing that, don't we? We like, we like to, Paul says we, we like to keep records of wrongs, and love doesn't do that. We, we like to keep records of wrongs. My marriage or my friendships, I like to keep those records. God will never, never, never treat you as if you are guilty, even though you are. Isn't that amazing? We are justified by the gift of the body of Christ, the gift of the single fat sacrifice, the gift of justification. Now, he doesn't just turn from that courtroom and say, okay, go out, live your life as you always have. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't release a criminal to just go out and, and sin and do it all again. No, he, he, he is also for reform. And so the author of Hebrews says we also have the gift of sanctification. Sanctification. If you're like me and you're doing that handout, you don't know how to spell that. That's okay. Just try, try your best. Sanctification. What does that mean? It's an important phrase. He says it this way in 16. This is sanctification. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart. I will write them on their minds. And as we look at the fullness of that passage, quoting from uh, Ezekiel, it says, I will put my spirit into them. We are justified. We are declared perfectly righteous. And then he promises, I will pour my Holy Spirit into them so that he will begin a process that will make them truly perfectly righteous. He doesn't just declare us perfectly righteous. He will, he will do it. We are indwelled Christian by the Holy Spirit, like a man dwells in a tent. Will that change you? That will change everything. He says, now, the law was out there. The Ten Commandments were out there. And its job was to be a reminder of my sin. The law was out there. But now God says, after I justify them, I will sanctify them. I'll take that law and I'll put it on their hearts. And we will want to obey Christian, do you want to obey? This is not perfect. We're not perfect. And sometimes it ebbs and flows, but I want to obey God. I want to. There's something deep down in me that desires to obey. He will put the laws on our minds. We'll be thinking of them. We'll be meditating on them. We will know them. We'll begin to see the glorious rationale behind them. We'll begin to see God not as this, the fun police. We'll begin to see these are for my good. These are for my good. And that Holy Spirit as He indwells in me will, will begin to make me perfect, will sanctify me. And Scripture says in Ephesians, He will produce good things. He will, he will produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and gentleness, 
faithfulness and self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. When we are declared righteous, He sends His Holy Spirit in us, and His Holy Spirit will start to produce these things. We'll be growing in all these things. So to see me with true eyes before and after I'm saved, after I'm saved, you will see a completely different person, and not because of anything that I have done, but because the Holy Spirit is in me. And so now, as we finish up, we need to ask this question. After every time I read the Bible, I try to ask this question. How then shall we live? Since these things are true, the gift of Christ, since this is true, how then shall we live? He gives us four ways we should live in view of, of Christ's sacrifice. Spirit-filled, law on the heart, law on the mind. How shall we live? He says, live in full assurance. He says, live in full assurance. He says, I'm going to read it for you, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is with His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Draw near. So the picture is this. God lived in there in the temple. The Holy of Holies. And there was a curtain that separated God from the rest of us. And that curtain was about this thick. It's this thick. And it symbolized that our sin separates us from the Holy God. Only one man, one time a year, could enter that place. And it was so holy, they tied a rope around his leg, put bells on him so that if he died in his sins before the presence of God, they could pull him out. And when Jesus offered his body as a single sacrifice for sins, and as he said, it is finished, Scripture tells us that that curtain that was so thick was torn from top to bottom as if God just went ripped. So the author of Hebrews says, Christian, how do we live our lives? Live your life in bold assurance of your salvation. Enter through that curtain which is the broken body of Christ. Enter right into God's presence. Isn't that good news? God wants to hear from us. But listen, our enemy will tell us this and say, hey, you just sinned. God doesn't want to hear from you. The author of Hebrews says, no, no, no. Enter boldly. Christ has spilled His blood for you once for all. Enter boldly. Martin Luther says it like this. Sin boldly. It doesn't mean go and sin. And No, we should live our lives for God. But he says, when you sin, boldly enter into the presence of God your Father. Tim Keller says it this way. There's only one person in the castle who dares to wake the king up in the middle of the night for a glass of water. And that's his child. You and I have that kind of access to God. Isn't that amazing? Live with bold assurance, confidence, and assurance that God wants to see you. This assurance is not our own righteousness, it is the righteousness of Christ. He says, number two, live holding fast to our confession of hope. As we said, Satan's going to love to snatch that from your hands, so we must hold fast, hold tight to our salvation. Hold tight to the truth of our salvation. Hold tight to the fact that Jesus covered our sins once for all. You must hold tight to that because you will sin again. 
and our enemy will threaten to snatch that from your hand. Hold tight to the confession of faith. Squeeze it. Jesus died for me. Squeeze it. Meditate on it. Jesus died for me. Preach it to your heart when you sin. Jesus died for me. He covered me. He says, live lovingly together to understand our confession of hope in the bodily sacrifice of Jesus will transform our relationship with the church. He says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. What a strange time to be talking about this. We got 20 or 30 people who watch online every week or sometime after that. You know, we're separated. There are good reasons not to come to church. There's not many of them, but there are good reasons not to come to church. If you're sick, stay home. He says, don't give up meeting together. We don't need to put a law on that to say if you go on vacation and don't go to church, then you're in big trouble. We don't need to put a law on that. We are free from the law in Christ. However, do not abandon the church. That's the word. Do not abandon the church. Do not forsake the church. Why? Why? Because when we are transformed by the Holy Spirit, when we see the broken body of Christ, we will want to gather with the saints and sing about it together. And we will want to gather with the saints and hear what God has to say to us. We'll have that. It'll be written on our hearts. I know sometimes it's hard. We need to strive for that. It's a hard time to be a church member, isn't it? The difficult time. But difficult times come. And apparently difficult times came for them because this sermon had to see also had to say, don't give up meeting together. Meet together. Rejoice in what Christ has done for you. Just don't neglect, encourage. And last thing, how shall we live? Live doing good works. Our girls are learning this in, in our Bible study at night, this question. Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, must we still do good works and obey God's Word? Yes! Why? So that our lives may show love and gratitude to God. We're not under the law. We don't do it because we think God's going to strike us down with lightning. We do it so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God. And that by our godly behavior, others may be one to Christ. So with every gift you open or send this Christmas, remember that this gift was given to you. The body of Jesus was broken for you so that you can enter boldly into the most holy place. Free of the consequences, eternal consequences of your sin. Know this, that by the broken body of Christ, that gift to you, you have access to the King at all times. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Christian, do you rest in the assurance of the broken body and blood of Jesus? Or do you feel like God is out to get you? He wants you to know He has given you the most precious gift so that you can enter into His very presence. He wants you to know that He, because of your faith in Christ, 
He does not keep a record of your wrongs. He does not keep that in His mind. He has forgiven you of that. It's done. He will never treat you as if you're a sinner again. He treats you as His son or daughter. Christian, remember, He has poured His Holy Spirit into you. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you and is committed to making you perfect. And someday you will be. And these gifts are given to you freely. God is not Santa Claus keeping a list of naughty and nice. He's not making sure you behave before He gives you gifts. He gives that to you freely. He gave that to you while you were still His enemy. He gave Christ's body for you. Christ was broken and bloodied for you before you were ever born. While you're still in your sinfulness, that was true. He gave that to you. Let us praise Him together. Will you stand with us as we sing?